Hello, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to Link Live. My name is Marina Mayer, Editor-in-Chief of Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. I'm here with my crew. If you want to go around. Hi, I'm Brielle Jekyll. I'm the Associate Editor. And I'm McKenna Morales, and I am the Assistant Editor. And as you can see, we have a guest. We're very excited. Somebody decided to join us today. We have John Skinner-Pieco. I apologize. We practiced that, too. He is the chair of Baker Donaldson's global business team, and he's joining us today to discuss how corporations have been rethinking their supply chains since the start of the trade war and how the pandemic has shifted the focus of sourcing, procurement, and offshoring. John, welcome. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we dive in, I just want to remind everybody the nominations for Food Logistics Rockstars at the Supply Chain Award close November 20th. And nominations for SDCE's Pros to Know Award close December 4th. So make sure you get those nominations in. Okay. So, John, let's uh, just kind of dive in. Um, Let's talk COVID. When the pandemic hit, sourcing became a pretty hot topic in the supply chain industry. How did this impact those companies who only sourced from overseas? You know, it really depended on uh, where you sourced from. So, for example, we started getting calls in early January as China was starting to fully uh, understand that they were dealing with, you know, a pretty significant event. And so, you know, we were getting questions about force majeure and and, and delayed and outright failed uh, delivery. And so a lot of those companies had to pivot fairly quickly if they could. Um, And if they didn't have real like a, a contingency plan to deal with supply disruption, and a lot of our clients were hurt uh, pretty significantly because it's not like you can just pivot from, say, China to some other source of supply in either North America or Europe. Um, but a lot of them tried, and then a lot of them just had to deal with that initial supply shock. But then as we started dealing globally with COVID, uh, it soon then became a, more of a demand shock. And so that, that then worked back upstream. And so you're seeing now some of these issues where a mismatch supply and demand. Um, and, uh, you know, companies are still struggling trying to get uh, back to, you know, I'll say square one or back to normal again. But a lot of them have uh, either um, found new supply or they've been able to kind of get back with their old suppliers. Uh, but we've seen significant failures in China of smaller suppliers. And so as a result, that has left some of our clients uh, really holding the bag with no supply at all. And now they're having to kind of rethink that whole process. Um, Well, so I'll go next. Um, Obviously, there's been a lot about this trade war happening. Um, That's been becoming prominent. How have companies uh, had to think differently in terms of um, operations in regards to the trade war? Right. You know, I think a lot of times people just don't fully appreciate what, say, we import from, say, China or, you know, that it's not always finished goods. But, you know, I think it's about last time I saw the number, it was roughly half of what we're importing from China were inputs and components and other things that, say, we then, U.S. manufacturers, would incorporate into their finished product, do that, that higher value add manufacturing and so it really um, significantly impacted uh, a lot of uh, manufacturers here in the United States because the tariffs uh, are nothing more than a tax, and they're a tax paid by the importer of record. In most cases, the importer of record is the U.S. company. And so what they were faced with, and I'll, I'll just give you an example. I was talking with a, uh, a, a large tier one auto supplier, 
and they were very concerned about their uh, downstream, I'm sorry, upstream small uh, suppliers. You know, that would provide them with the components because they're all stuck on these contracts that they can't necessarily pass on the cost of that, that added cost. And in some cases, you're adding 25% to the cost of your uh, product when the margins are significantly smaller than that. And so what was happening is they were worried about delayed or failed delivery, which in some cases did occur on the failed delivery. But at the same time, because these suppliers couldn't pass on the cost, they had to cut costs in other ways. And so what they were doing with them was reducing their workforce, which then meant they could only they could produce less, you know, components or less parts, which then of course goes all the way through the, you know, the, 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 the supply chain. And I think you were seeing that in all different industries where, um, where in terms of importing from China. Now the other side of it, say for example, on the food side, so the agricultural side here in the United States, um, because of the tariffs that we imposed on Chinese products, then, then China retaliated. And one of the sectors they're going to retaliate is always on agriculture because agricultural exports, you know, is such a significant part of our uh, economy. And so that then raised the price on all agricultural products. And of course, you know, like any business, when you look at a U.S., say, soybean versus, say, a soybean coming out of Brazil or, or Argentina, and the price differential is so significant, you know, you're just going to go choose, assuming quality is otherwise the same, you're going to go choose the, the less expensive product, which is exactly what they did. In fact, the whole Brazilian soybean uh, market is, is a result of the U.S. at different times in our history imposing tariffs. Uh, it's really allowed that industry to grow. So you're seeing, I think, on both sides, companies that import um, are facing now, uh, you know, higher costs. And on the other side, those companies that maybe export products that have been hit by retaliatory tariffs, whether by China or we could even go to Europe too, um, that, you know, that they're really significant, they're hurting. Um, and if you really look at what the, the, the uh, uh, current administration has had to spend, I mean, it's, it's what, over $14, $15 billion to help the farmers um, uh, when, in fact, they were all doing so well, uh, I think, with finding new export markets and, and, and all the rest. And it's really, I think, set them back, uh, you know, fairly significant, uh, fairly significantly, hopefully. And, of course, you know, with the, with the um, phase one trade deal that we uh, had entered into with China, obviously there were hopes that that would be uh -huh. able to then at least restore what was lost, uh -huh. um, uh, you know, for the farmers. But of course, now with COVID, it is just so dramatically impacted everyone um, that you know I don't think they'll they'll come close to um, you know getting back to where they were. Mm -hmm. Something that they talked about in the vice presidential debate a few weeks ago too was the trade war, and Senator Kamala Harris went to Mike Pence and said that the U.S. lost the trade war because of how it's significantly hurt in it. And he rebuttaled and said that sen the senator didn't fight in it, so she had no right to say that. But it did hurt the consumers. Can you just like touch a little bit more on that? Sure. You know, it, yeah, and I'll just give you my background so whoever's listening can know there's some price and bias in here. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big believer and proponent of free trade. 
Um, I, I believe tariffs, they have some limited purpose, but I think in the, the way they were used here is exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, the U.S. pays, whether that's the U.S. company, say, that has to pay the tariff to bring in the good or something like that, um, and whether they can pass that cost onto the consumer or not is just depends, I guess, on the elasticity of the, of, of the price. But let's say they can, well, then we, the American consumer, has to pay that price in, in terms of higher prices across the board. And, you know, it, it, it's, I, I, I think that the way to deal with, say, a China um, is not necessarily through uh, tariffs. Um, because, again, they'll have some impact, sure. I mean, there, you can definitely see it in the reduced um, growth in China before COVID uh, as a result of the tariffs and the less demand here in, in the United products. But at the same time, you know, ways like through multilateralism. So for example, uh, what was TPP now is RCTPP. That, that block um, represents a significant amount of Asian trade. Um, then coupled with say other free trade agreements where we could enter an interim agreement with the EU, now you've got a significant part of global trade that is within our kind of sphere. China would want to join and that's a way you can kind of deal with China, I think, to some respect. Again, that's oversimplifying very complicated and complex issues, but I think it's one way to do it. And these tariffs, like I said, all they do is they 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 make demand for goods here more expensive, the goods here more expensive, and they reduce demand for our own products, um, you know, abroad. And so you get the double whammy now that you're starting to see, uh, and I think it really does impact, especially now when a lot of people have lost their jobs. They maybe have suffered uh, wage decreases as a way to keep the job, but we're going to pay you some percentage less. You know, and, and a lot of people do shop at, at Walmart or Dollar General or Tractor Supply or some of these other stores that do source a lot of their products from China. And now on top of all this, they have to pay an extra 10, 15, 20%. I mean, that really eats into, um, you know, a, a, a you know, the, the, the wallet of, a, of American family. And I think it's, it's, it's problematic, but I don't think I have to be honest. I don't think whoever gets elected, you're going to see these tariffs go away anytime soon. Clearly if president Trump gets reelected, that is a major part of their policy vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, and again, on the Biden side, uh, while I think for my own, just talking with folks associated with the campaign, it seems like they're going to be doing more of a collaborate, but we also recognize we're competitors. And so you're going to have some, I think, some carrots and stick, whereas right now I think all we have is a bunch of sticks. Um, but you can't just let those tariffs go without gaining something back from China. And that's going to take a little time in order to get to a point where maybe now you can start negotiating using those tariffs to gain some concessions, you know, from China. But so I think the tariffs will remain um, on most products for some for the foreseeable future. We may see a change more quickly, say, on, uh, well, I'll say PPE or maybe on some other, you know, products or some goods that we need in the country right now. Uh, but I think it's going to be a while before we actually get to, um, say, maybe some agri – you know, where, where China will then take away its agricultural tariffs on our products to help the farmers and, and everybody else in the, you know, the food supply chain. Mm -hmm. And then I have another question, yeah. of course. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so at the beginning, of the going back to what you said about farmers, about how we saw them get hurt by the tit-for-tat tariffs – how can we continue to 
and consumers are now continuing to panic by dry goods. How can we predict supply and demand? You know, it, I would say 20 years ago, this was just difficult. I think it was more art than science, but I believe now uh, with so much data that is available and tools that are also now available to take that data and help folks understand maybe where supply and demand really are and how they can match those. So like predictive analysis, um, we have a big uh, ag tech hub here in Tennessee where I'm based uh, down in the Memphis area and they're developing all sorts of tools now that folks can use to help them understand where in the market um, the, the demand is and how then they can match that with the supply. And I think you're also seeing other like uh, artificial intelligence tools that are available, not only to the farmers, but to everybody really in that supply chain down to, let's say, the grocer, you know, the, the grocery company itself. So they can figure out how to then uh, manage what they see maybe on, the, on their demand side how they can then go back up through the supply chain to see if they can match that with different suppliers. And that way you get the, you get the right, the right maybe crops being grown or the right uh, livestock being, uh, you know, harvested in the right places so that you can then match that a little bit better. But, but it's, I've been really amazed at what is available now to folks on the agricultural side um, that are, that's being developed and how, you know, all this data uh, really, um, you know, with the right tools can really be helpful and useful. One of the main goals of the aluminum and steel tariffs that the Trump administration placed back in 2018 was to help bring jobs back to the states, but it actually, but companies actually started to source from different countries that weren't as hit by the duties. How can companies continue to bring this production back? Right. You know, it, the steel and aluminum tariffs, I, I understand where they were coming from. Our USTR, Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, basically his career um, was representing the uh, U.S. steel industry in a lot of uh, anti-dumping, countervailing duty cases, so trade remedy cases in, you know, in Washington. And so that's a background. I think he has a lot of deep connections there. And uh, the president also uh, was very, you know, big on steel and aluminum. But you know, if you really look at what we make here in the United States, we don't make a lot of steel and aluminum. Most specialty steel and aluminum is made outside of the United States. And so while these tariffs initially, um, I, can't, I, I, I was looking for this number today to see if I can get a more updated number. The last number I saw is probably now a couple months old, but this, they created just a few thousand new jobs as a result of these tariffs, I think at a cost of over $800,000 a job. Um, in the steel production and aluminum production side. But what we do in the United States, and we do it very, very well, is we take that steel and aluminum and we make it into things, okay? And so the, 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 those, those uh, manufacturers that use steel and aluminum in their business, they really were hurt because the cost went up across the board, not only in terms of imported steel and aluminum, but also because now the cost of imported steel and aluminum is more, domestic producers could raise, could raise their price more. And so it really cost everybody more money. And so you lost a lot of jobs on the other side. So it was actually a net loss of jobs. And so you have to start thinking to yourself, okay, what am I really trying to accomplish here? And do I really want to bring back steel and aluminum production like we did, like we had, say, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? 
it's a different environment now in the world. You know, if you think about it, after World War II, most of the advanced economies in the world were decimated by the war. Um, and there were, you know, very few other economies outside of, say, the United States uh, that really were, were viable to produce a lot of goods and, and all the rest. The United States financed the reconstruction of those economies, but also produced the goods that were used to finance that, re or uh, I'm sorry, to reconstruct those economies. And so for probably the 1950s and 1960s, we didn't have a lot of competition in the world. You started seeing that, though, in the 70s, as now these economies had recovered, and you saw now developing economies really develop. And you think about it. You can get goods now pretty much from anywhere in the world, uh, of any type in the world. And so now we have all this competition. And so we have to start thinking about, do we really need to make everything in the United States? Or can we even do that? Do we have enough resources to be able to do that? And probably we don't. I think most economists will tell you we don't. And so we need to think about, well, how do we want to help the steel and aluminum industry? But I don't think you're ever going to get steel and aluminum jobs on the production side back at the levels maybe they were, let's say, in the 70s or maybe even the 80s. Um, I just don't think that's possible. And a lot of the steel and aluminum that we use is really made in, in other places um, and we need to think about how bringing that in or how we, maybe we can, we can help our manufacturers use that steel and aluminum to, to grow on the manufacturing side versus, say, the production side. I know that's a long answer to your question. Sorry. No, it was wonderful information. These are complicated you know, questions that unfortunately don't have simple solutions. And unfortunately, a lot of our elected officials are trying to find that simple solution because it's something they can talk about. And it just requires, I think, a lot of um, coordination amongst the different industry groups as well as with our allies around the world as to how we can make this really work um, for, for everyone. Because it needs to be a win-win for everyone. That's the whole thing with trade. You can't be I win, you lose, otherwise you're not going to trade with me anymore. And I think we're in that mode right now where we have to win and everybody else has to do worse. And it, it, it just doesn't ultimately work that way. Um, and now, you know, today, uh, think about it. You can, you can get products from anywhere in the world and they can ship them to you in just a matter of days. And it's a, so it's a very different um, uh, in, environment than, say, we had just even 10 years ago. Um, and I think we need to work on how do we improve – how do we help our folks that are here now doing business? Maybe, for example, on the, on the food side, how do we help them find new markets outside of the United States? Because there are, there are significant markets out there that really want U.S. products. And helping them expand their market share globally, uh, I think, is, is probably a better answer than, say, protecting, uh, you know, in some cases, outdated or, or you know, uh, production that we just don't need anymore. We can do other things and make more money for our, for our folks. Well, so with all the trade war happening and, and what mostly is COVID caused from COVID-19, a lot of people are saying that the U.S. might enter into a recession. Um, what, what's your take on that? Sure. I, I think most economists would tell you today that we are in a recession um, and that it's, it's going to be a long recovery, uh, slow, long recovery, um, and unless we can get our hands around the pandemic. And what I mean by that is obviously it'd be great if we could, you know, get a vaccine tomorrow, everyone takes it and we're all fine. That's unlikely to happen just, just based on the way these things work. But what we need to do is we need to, uh, I think, make 
employees feel safe to go back to work. So we can go back to our office, we can go back to our restaurant, we can go back to our hotel, and at the same time, make the American consumer feel safe to re-engage in the marketplace, not just ordering online from any one of the many online retailers, but actually going to the brick-and-mortar store. Because once you go to the store, I mean, think about it. Our U.S. economy is, what, 75% consumer spending? That's what drives GDP growth. And so we need to get consumers back out into the marketplace, but they're only going to do it when they feel safe. You're not going to get on a plane right now maybe and travel to go on a vacation, uh, you know, I don't know, somewhere in the United States. Most people don't feel safe to do it. They don't feel safe to stay in the hotel. And, and again, that may be good. That may be right or that may be wrong. I don't know, but that's the perception. And that perception then becomes our reality. So how do we make these folks feel safe? And we've got to work on that because once we do that, then you'll have that consumer demand, which then goes, just works its way up the supply chain um, and will help everybody uh, you know, along the way. But at the same time, we need to also feel safe to go you know, back to the office. I see all of you in three different places, right? And I bet usually you're probably right there in the same room together. Or maybe not, but in my case, I am. This is this is weird for me. So um, I, I, I've I've been in this little office now for about seven months. So uh, I'm usually surrounded by a team of people. We work together all the time, and um, but we just can't go back to work yet. And I know that's true of a lot of you know places. And you think about what some of our folks are dealing with, say, in the food processing industries. Um, you know, they're frontline workers. They're out there every day. And a lot of them are putting, you know, their health at risk just so we can have, say, fresh food, uh, you know, to eat. And so if we can make that safer, then I think we'll get more production and we won't have, say, some of the um, some of these issues that we're gonna, we have experienced and may even likely experience as we enter the fall and winter when some are predicting we'll have even, you know, a worse time, which hopefully we won't. Yeah, it's funny. We always, we always talk about, you know, how you know, we're all trying to do different things and accomplish different things. And yes, we're all in, as you said, three different places. In fact, our entire staff is, is fully remote. Um, and, and yet, for some reason, with technology, we've been able to make it work. So I don't know what we would have done 20, 30 years ago without Zoom, but yeah, that's um, right. it's a true testament to, you know, how, how companies are able to make things work you know, despite all of the challenges, you know, that they face. So, you know, I know that you don't have a crystal ball, so to speak, but, you know, there are things that companies can be doing now to better prepare themselves for in the event that there is a second or third wave or just, just overall preparation. So what are some things companies should be doing now to better prepare? Right. So if you have the re if you have the resources and not every, you know, most of the American businesses are small and medium enterprises. So they don't have unlimited resources and they sometimes don't even have a dedicated person that focuses say on the supply chain. Um, but in a perfect world, what you'd be doing now is you'd be looking back at your supply chain for a couple of things. You'd be looking to see, okay, you would understand your supply chain. A lot of folks got caught because they said, well, I'm sourcing from name another, name a country other than China. I'm sourcing from that place. Well, they didn't realize though there was a supply chain within the supply chain, right? And that, that within the supply chain, maybe they were sourcing a bunch of components from China. So when China went dark for a while, it just totally disrupted their supply chain. So understanding that, and then also understanding at the same time, as people are coming out of COVID, do they have the financial kind of wherewithal or stability to even, are they, do they still exist? 
and do they have the ability to withstand and to really do what they need to do to help you as a company? Because you'll see that where some companies are extremely weak within your supply chain, and that creates its own problem that may or may not be another, you know, supply disruption, supply chain disruption because of a pandemic or something, just because they just, you know, uh, they just can't financially uh, survive. So looking at that and understanding that, and then looking for how do I build resiliency and redundancy then into that supply chain in some of my key areas and, and focusing on those issues. Um, and at the same time, we've had, you know, we'll, we're working with some right now that are saying, okay, I'm going, I'm moving away from one long extended global supply chain and I'm looking at regional supply chains. So I do business in Asia, I do business in the Americas and I do business, let's say, in the MENA region. Um, I'm going to have a supply chain there here and then also over in you know the European area and and they're focusing on that as a way to shorten those supply chains so for example let's say we have another uh, uh, experience like this of a significant supply chain disruption but I've gone to this regional structure then I'm not relying on uh, planes and vessels from China when there were none you know the, all the vessels got redirected because there was nothing coming out and of course without the domestic uh, air traffic uh, the availability of air cargo was slashed to, you know, some small you know, percentage. And so it was very difficult to get your goods even out. Uh, but if I go to this model, let's say, and I'm, and I'm manufacturing in Mexico, Canada, you know, somewhere maybe Central America, I've got access to trucks, I've got access to rail, I've got access to all sorts of other forms of transportation to get my products and components, you know, from here to there. So people are, are starting to do that. So these smaller, you know, smaller like uh, uh, you know mom and pop kind of uh, businesses. I mean, what we're trying to get them to understand is let's look, let's look at your contracts, let's look at to make sure they have say provisions in them that will allow you to be more flexible where you need to be, uh, both from a demand side and also a supply side, and then also uh, helping them understand that supply chain a little bit better, and then identifying you know what's really critical super critical in that, and let's focus on that, and let's help you maybe shore that up or develop a contingency plan, because, you know, redundancy, just all of this costs money, right? It takes time, and it takes money to build these plans, but for these smaller operations, we can help them kind of focus on some critical points in that supply chain, and then building a plan around that. It's not perfect. Um, it won't, you know, uh, uh, maybe help them through every possible, you know, permutation of a pandemic in the future, a supply chain disruption in the future, but it should at least help them um, get through some of the, you know, some of these uh, more difficult times, at least to the point where they can survive. And as they grow, maybe they can improve on other aspects. That's wonderful stuff. It's, it's super insightful. And I know that, you know, this is such a fascinating topic and I know we could talk about it for hours, but the information that you've provided in just a short time frame is really insightful. So, John, I, I appreciate you being a part of today's program um, and just educating us because there are so many things that, that are involved with the trade war that, you know, from my vantage point where I'm sitting, I don't know anything about. I just know that I'm thankful for the frontliners, so I get my food. But like you brought up, there are many right. layers to that. And when you, know, you get certain rules and, and regulations in place, it kind of skews how, how things move through. So yeah. I appreciate your time. Oh, no, no problem. This is not easy. And I, I mean, I wish there were some easy solutions to all of these problems. But, um, but again, if we all work together, I think we can find better solutions that will um, allow, you know, to mitigate some of the uh, 
issues that we're, some of our companies are facing here in the United States, and at the same time, allow our companies to grow you know, globally. Perfect. I love it. I agree. We're all in it together, so we've got to keep, keep, right. keep working on it together. I appreciate it. So, John, thank you. Thank you to our listeners um, for watching today. Um, you know, this was John Skinapieko from Baker Donaldson. <laughs> Hopefully I did okay. Um, and make sure you go to, okay, good. <laughs> make sure you go to foodlogistics.com um, to visit our awards page. You'll see all of our awards. Um, make sure you nominate for rock stars of the supply chain, but you'll also see all of our other awards. We have four awards total for food logistics. Um, and then go to sdceexec.com and check out our awards page there for awards there as well. Our Pros to Know Award closes December 4th. So make sure you visit our website, follow us on link, and see you next week. Link live, same time, same place, 11 a.m. Central. We will see you later. Thank you very Bye. much.